This is the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, the podcast that brings you the straight-up, unfiltered story. What's really going down in Israel? Politics, economics, religion and state, lots of conflict. I'm your host, Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. We're on the street with the folks who live here and have skin in the game. Yalla, let's dive in. Hi, and welcome. It's Thursday, February 23rd, and this is the launch of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. Fittingly, I'm speaking to you from beautiful Odessa, Ukraine, where I arrived very early in the morning. It's cold, gloriously sunny, and the city is on edge. Tomorrow, Friday, marks the first anniversary to the day of the outbreak of this mad, mad war. Stay tuned for reports throughout the week, here and in print, so please sign up at stateoftelaviv.com to be sure you don't miss a beat. That's stateoftelaviv, all one word, dot com. If you want more background on the issues we'll be discussing on the podcast today, check out the website. You'll find loads of great written material there. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Vivian Berkovich, Canadian-Israeli, grew up in Toronto, Canada, where I raised my two daughters, practiced law, and did all sorts of cool stuff. January 2014, Prime Minister Stephen Harper appointed me Canadian ambassador to Israel. Yep, just like that. I call it my Cinderella story, and I've been in Israel ever since. So now let's get to the business we're going to be talking about today, which you've all heard about, the justice reforms that the new coalition government in Israel led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, is determined to pass into law, very quickly. Many Israelis, myself included, feel that these sweeping reforms to the judicial system undermine Israeli democracy, and with that, society and the economy. This is why hundreds of thousands of Israelis from all political parties and socioeconomic sectors have been taking to the streets to protest. I will never shy from sharing my views with you, but I will also work hard to present you with diverse opinions, and today is no exception. You'll get the left, the center, that's me, and the right. So let's just get to it. We're starting off today with the redoubtable Professor Yossi Shane, a brilliant academic. Shane currently heads the Political Science and International Diplomacy Faculties at Tel Aviv University, among other responsibilities. He spent decades dividing his time between Tel Aviv University and top U.S. academic institutions, among them Georgetown and Yale. In recent years, he has resided full-time in Tel Aviv. Quick-witted, brilliant, and deeply passionate about the Israeli future, Shane took a brief hiatus from academia recently and served as a member of Knesset in the party led by Avigdor Lieberman, Israel Our Home, Israel Betenu. Shane is politically right-wing, but not an ideologue. He understands the power of knowledge and pragmatic compromise, and he takes a very long view of history, seeing this moment for the blip that it is. A year or so ago, Shane published a book called The Israeli Century. It's a must-read. He considers the dramatic change in Jewish identity that is upon us now. It's a very prescient work. For the first time since the destruction of the Second Temple, the majority of the Jewish people resides in the modern state of Israel. This reality has significant implications, some of which we are living in this moment of judicial reform. Shane argues that Israel, not America, 
is the center of Jewish life and identity, and the two societies, Israeli and American Jewish, have very divergent understandings of what it means to be Jewish, of what Jewish values are. I urge you to read this book if you would really like to understand how and why we find ourselves in this moment of crisis. But we begin our discussion today with Yossi Shane in Modern Times, discussing how the current governing coalition is undermining the democratic founding principles of the State of Israel, as set out in the Declaration of Independence. Look, I write about it in my book, because I talk about, on the one hand, there is a process of what I call the Israelization of Judaism, and then there is, of course, the counter-process of what we call the Jewification of the Israeli identity. I'll explain it right now what we have. Right now what we have is a new coalition that basically is assaulting the very basic tenet of Israel's modern ideology and modern identity as a Zionist democratic nation. Why do I say it's their assault? In their view, the very basic principles on which the Israeli state was established are no longer the principles that are valid into the future. Let me explain. If 27% of the first graders in Israel are ultra-Orthodox, will the state of Israel remain modern into the future? And they're growing fastly. In 1995, there were 235,000 ultra-Orthodox in Israel. In 2020, there were 1.4 million. We're now 16% growing fast. The, the average 54-year-old, 74-year-old man, ultra-Orthodox man, will have 54 offsprings in his life when he's 74. And that is the, the, and while the secular Israeli will have, if he's at best 74, will have eight or nine because Israel still have very high growth even among the secular. And, and you know, we are the fastest growing population in percentage of, of all the OECD countries. Secondly, in Israel, there are those in the, in, in the coalition Half of the coalition are ultra-Orthodox and right-wing extremists who no longer cherish the modern way Israel should live, but rather want to reinstate the first or second temple existence with the spirit of the old Hebrews. They are basically assaulting our existence as a Zionist modern nation. To this, you add Netanyahu and his alliances who are seeking to get away from all kinds of charges by the, by the court and so on and so forth, aligning with the desire to change the Supreme Court, which basically is cherish, basically cherishing the liberal creed of modernity. And they don't want the, the, the Supreme Court to have judicial review. They don't want the Supreme Court to dictate in their mind the values of society, but rather the majority will dictate. If the majority will dictate, and this may be the case, let's say the ultra-Orthodox will be the majority of Israel, Israel will be an halakhic state, no longer a modern state. But yet, Israel, as I write in my book, is also the startup nation. It's the ultra-modern state. So there is a tag of war, which was always in the streets, always in the air, because why? Those who are the startup nation and the modern people, who are those who are paying taxes, and those who are serving in the army and are the basically have built the country, those who are assaulting it, some of whom are serving and so on, but they are not the core of this. At this point, the majority say, 
we should govern. We have our, we won, we won majority in the parliament. So we should change not only the government, the former government, we should change the basic tenet of the society. So we don't want a modern society as you see it. We want it to be more traditional. We want it to resort to other values. And we don't want the Supreme Court to interfere with their liberal kind of like intervention. Notwithstanding the fact that the Supreme Court is not only liberal, there are many conservatives. It must be said that the Supreme Court itself and the, the, the ideology that the, the leaders of the Supreme Court and former judges, especially Aaron Burr, indeed have oftentimes stepped their bounds, stepped by intervening. And there would, everybody agrees the Supreme Court was an activist court, two activists. So this tag of war, in addition to other issues that because Netanyahu is involved in very, very dangerous trials for a very serious crime of corruption and his minister dairy and so on, everything comes together into an explosive mode. And we are, as I always told you, for the first time on the verge of civic strife and I would say even civil war. Israel is certainly there. And if it will not be maintained by some form of an agreement, and they will rush with their reform right now, which many people consider not just a judicial reform, basically a change of Israel regime that will never be democracy anymore. And that is a type of war that is going on in the streets of Israel, in the businesses, in the judicial system, in the academy, anywhere you go. And it's very uh, disheartening to many people because we love this country. Israelis are incredibly patriotic. And we see that something is really wrong going in terms of our bond, the, the Jewish bond, the mutual responsibility, the brotherhood, and so on, is being injected with poison. We are a society injected by poison. And this poison is making the body politic very sick. And this is a dangerous moment. And no one should underestimate how dangerous this moment is. As you put it, this is about what is our highest value? Is our Absolutely. highest value to be a liberal Jewish democratic state? Or is our highest value to be a Jewish halachic state that really does not prioritize or consider democracy to be something that is at the top of our issue matrix, at the top Absolutely. of our... Absolutely. Let me give you an example, just that your audience will understand. Sure. Take the two major partners of Netanyahu, the ultra-Orthodox Shas, with 11 members who has no woman whatsoever, by constitution they cannot have a woman, or the ultra-Orthodox uh, Yaduta Torah, who doesn't have any woman. None of what they've done because women are second-class citizens in their minds. They cannot participate in the Knesset. In addition to the criminality, in my opinion, of these parties, because they are to suck the budget of the government without participating in fighting forces of Israel. They do not see the fighting forces of Israel as the highest goal of society, but rather studying the Torah. This is a huge struggle. Second, Take the other partners of Netanyahu, the ultra-extreme right-wing. They also have different values than the liberal societies that we cherish. That's why this civic rife strife that we are having is about to explode. And I predict violence in this society. 
God permit, we will see it, but I speak about it for years. Netanyahu sold his soul for this because of this power. And uh, there is no other word to say it because Netanyahu is exemplary modern. He was born to a modern Absolutely. family. He was, oh, he, he studied in MIT. He kind of like uh, his brother is, 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 a, is, a, uh, is a hero of an Ebe. He represents, and he always liked to be, when he speaks in English, he represents modern Israel and the startup nation. But domestically, he sold out to the forces, hiding behind them in order to shield himself and to gain power. This is why Netanyahu, and I'm sorry to say it because he's a smart man, a man who has been elected time and again, they kind of developed around him an aura of charismatic leader, even worldwide. I think his legacy is going to be tarnished by destruction and by this rivalries and hate that is now, you see, every place in Israel, and Israel, of course, disappeared. In the Second Temple era, we had tremendous amount of rivalries during the Maccabee period, and one should not underestimate our ability to go at, his, at, 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 at each other's throat. And to self-destruct. We can be self-destruct, and the Arabs are waiting. Keep in mind, I come from a very right-wing party. It's not a matter of right or left, as they're trying to debunk, to say it's a left orientation. No, we are not left. We are much right than Netanyahu on many issues. But, but there is kind of like sloganism. The debunking everyone is not Netanyahu as left which is ridiculous. The ultra-Orthodox who are unpatriotic because they don't cherish the state. As, as Gaffney tells me in the Knesset, and then I'll explain, Mamlakti and Sanedi are negation by definition, which means statehood and Haredi life are negations because the Haredi never cherish the state. On the contrary, they are bemoaning day of independence as a day of destruction because we should await it to the Messiah. So lots of, I would say, kind of like attempts to sloganeering, debasing the opposition as illegitimate. And keep in mind who is in the opposition. All the leaders of the military, all of them, uh -huh. in the, historically speaking, the heads of the military, all the leaders of the Shin Bet and the Mossad, all of them, all the leaders of the economy, all the leaders of the high tech, Netanyahu doesn't have any of those, which means modernity. And statehood is not with Netanyahu. Nevertheless, he goes with his forces against it. And I think, even though he's a very charismatic leader for those who are supporting him, he uses two things. One is religiosity and tradition. The second is ethnicity. There is a huge divide that Netanyahu builds on and cherishes and kind of like create artificially, which is a divide between Mizrahi Jews and Ashkenazi Jews. I just want to put it in a broader context as well. These values that Western Jews hold so dear, and they do, are liberal democratic values. It's liberal democracy that is the very thing that has allowed us to flourish and live with dignity in the diaspora over the last few hundred years. And Israel will no longer be aligned as a nation with the West. It's absolutely Israel right. is always, we have always defended ourselves for good reason on the issue of the Palestinians, on the issue of what people call the occupation, what I call sort of like the inability to resolve issues of the Palestinian nemesis. And we said, you know, this is temporary. We don't hold the territories we have until things will happen. 
And now we sidetrack from that. It's not only the Palestinian issue, it's the issue of Israel's democracy. This is why it will be double, double, double jamming for Israel. And the Israelis themselves understanding that we are here in a, in a, in a terrible situation because Israelis are incredibly patriotic. They love the country. They defend the country. They shed blood for the country. We all fly from wherever we are just to defend our countries. Oh. And right now, they are basically playing with this commitment. Once you start to play with such commitments and debunk those who are defending the country as supposedly lefty, you are basically undermining the very tenant of this society. This is incredibly dangerous because our, our nemesis did. Some of the Arabs of Hezbollah, of Hamas, will smell it. You should be very careful, Netanyahu. Keep in mind that there is Israeli, there is an Israeli nation, there is, there is the Jewish people as a unit, and don't mess it up because you may destroy it and that will be on your shoulders. That's what I'm saying. Nothing less than that. We feel it in the street. We feel it on day-to-day level. What I wanted to finish off with, Yossi, is your, I'd like to hear your comments on the pressure that Netanyahu is under these days. He's been, we know that he was on the phone last week with the heads of rating agencies. Uh, it's reported that he was also speaking with the heads of J.P. Morgan Chase and other big and Goldman Sachs and other significant economic players in the U.S. saying, hey, listen, it's not so crazy. Everything's going to be fine. My critics are just overblowing things and nothing will happen. No reason to downgrade our credit. The economy is going to hum along just as it always has. Ignore the noise. Keep investing in Israel. Everything will be fine. The pressure he is under from within the country, from the academics, from business people, from innovators, the tech community, from the military, retired military generals and leaders, you name it. Um, is significant. And he's now being pressured, in my view, by significant economic interests in the U.S. and elsewhere. Absolutely. I'd like you to, com- I'd like you to comment on what, if any, influence you think this may have on judicial reform and Netanyahu's conduct going forward. This will have critical influence. I'll tell you what it is all about. They will try to tell you, as today, Mr. Smotrich, Smotrich is now the finance minister. Keep in mind that Smotrich, as the deputy head of the Shin Bet said, is a terrorist. Smotrich isn't good. That's what he said, not me. He was, he was, he was, he was investigated because he wanted to basically during the, the disengagement from Gaza to blow up the ILOs. Now, Smotrich has grown up. He's a minister now. Smotrich, what he said today, he said that those who are taking money out of Israel and so on, are like Israelis are supporting the BDS, the boycott, the investment, and sanctions of the Palestinians. Rubbish. Everybody in the financial sector that I meet, 350 top economists, all the bank managers, all the head of the central bank, generations of them, that Netanyahu appointed, warning him that this judicial shift will basically destroy the legal system that protects the economy that protects investors, that protects against tax imposition, which is kind of like random impositions, and create uncertainty. That's what they're telling him. It's not politics. We need some kind of like a personality of of responsibility, the mature 
person in the family. We need the mature person. Netanyahu is not playing the mature person to my sorrow. It's time to do so. Notwithstanding the persecutions that you have and so on, take the mature person and take and be the leader of the country. Right now, he's the leader of a coalition, not of a country. Yossi Shane, it's always wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing not just your insights, but your passion with the State of Tel Aviv podcast listeners. And you're a great person to launch with. And I promise you, you're going to be invited back because I, I'm, you're I'm grateful to you. And I know how dedicated you have been in the past few years. You have been here as the ambassador of Canada. You have a passion for this country, and I know it. And I know that we both speak from the bottom of our hearts, from love of this place. And I thank you for hosting me. Right? Passionate doesn't begin to do justice to Yossi Shane's commitment and brilliance. He's a tough act to follow, but our next guest, my good friend and outstanding journalist, Amir Tibon, is up to the challenge. A poster boy for the center-left in Israel, Tibon is so connected, almost viscerally, to the political and social mood in Israel and doesn't allow his personal opinions to cloud his vision of the bigger picture. There is no daylight between what Amir Tibon and Yossi Shane observed, and that I say with regret. I spoke with Amir recently and asked him what has surprised him most in recent months as this crisis goes on and on. One thing has surprised me which is the response of Israeli society. And I think I'm not the only one who's been surprised. I think Prime Minister Netanyahu and the members of his coalition are equally surprised by this. I think they did not expect such a huge wave of protest. And we can talk about it later. But in terms of the moves taken by the government, I thought immediately the morning after the election that what we're seeing today, uh, this attempt to completely change the balance of power between the authorities in Israel is it's essentially going to be their plan of action. I want to pick up on what you were saying about that you're surprised by Israelis. And I, I'm assuming the depth and breadth of, and seriousness of the reaction, the widespread reaction of Israeli society to these reforms. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Absolutely. I think what we've been seeing in the last few weeks is the largest and most defiant protest movement that Netanyahu has faced in his forever years as a prime minister. I think in this case, it's been six weeks now when we record this conversation that we're seeing these massive demonstrations in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem, in Haifa, in the area where I live in southern Israel, uh, Beersheba, and closer to my home in the Gaza border area. Everywhere, people are out in the streets. We saw the massive demonstration in front of the, on Monday, February 12th, the, the day that the Knesset held the first committee vote on this overhaul. And I have to say, I was expecting some protest and some opposition to this plan. But as you said, Vision, not at, at this level of intensity and depth and determination. And I'm sure Netanyahu and his allies, again, they have been equally by how strong the resistance has been. Because, you know, there is this image of liberal Israel, the state of Tel Aviv, if you call it. But, you know, it's very focused on a quality of life and enjoying all the wonderful things that Tel Aviv has to offer. But when you've got the former heads of Mossad and Shin Bet and the IDF and there's a Bank of Israel and 
you know, executives in, in the U.S. and executives in Israel as well, and all kinds of people, professionals, teachers, everybody taking to the streets and condemning these moves in the harshest terms. This must be a real cold shower for Netanyahu. Definitely. And again, I, I think he did not expect it. And, you know, I want to say something about the argument that this is just the left refusing to accept Netanyahu's election victory. Right. So I happen to live and work in environments that I think of are that I think are very representative of the Israeli center left political and the societal and the cultural bloc. As you know, because you've visited me here several times. I live in Kibbutz Nachal Oz, which is a small community located directly on the Israeli border with Gaza. In this kibbutz where I live in the last election, I think 83% of the population voted for the parties that formed the previous government, the government of change that managed to get Netanyahu out of power for a year and a half. And I think, you know, if, if our kibbutz determined the election results, Netanyahu would right now be leading a small faction in the opposition. You also know that I work at Haaretz newspaper, which is the liberal voice of Israel, if you will, the, obviously the most prominent newspaper that is affiliated with the Israeli left. And I grew up in a, in a military family in Israel. We moved quite a lot, but most of my teenage years were spent in Tel Aviv. So I think I have a pretty good understanding of what we call the center left in Israel, which is where the, the environment where I grew up. And in, in many ways where I still, you know, live today and work today, I never encountered the kind of reactions that we're seeing today from people in my social and professional circles. When has there ever been a discussion about that before? I, I, I never remember people talking about these kinds of things. A protest wave that has gotten hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets merely I think six or seven weeks after the government has been formed. We've never had that before in Israel. We're usually in Israel when after an election, the losing side will lick their wounds and yeah. go to the opposition. And maybe a year or two when the government will do something outrageous, people will take out to the streets. What we're seeing now is very unusual. And it's not about an election loss. And it's not about the divide between different tribes, I think, in Israeli society. At the end of the day, it's about a fundamental question. What kind of country do we want Israel to be? But this specific plan, the way that it's being promoted in the Knesset, and the when you look at the details, I think is very dangerous. And people get it. You don't need to be a legal expert. You don't need to be a professor of the international law to understand that when you have a government that can select all the judges and then the Supreme Court can only decide that legislation is unconstitutional or contradicts basic laws of Israel with 80% of the judges, you know, deciding in lockstep. And on top of that, the smallest possible majority in the Knesset, 61 seats out of 120, can override any Supreme Court decision. You combine those three factors and you're basically canceling the idea of judicial review. And right. it took me 45 seconds now to explain this. People get it. People understand what's happening here. And this is why they're going out to the streets and not because of the other reasons that we're sometimes hearing in the counter arguments coming from the government. And I mean, you, you know just as well that it's never easy, but 
I know people are really looking into it. Yeah. But I want to say people are also fighting right now. I don't feel like there's this sense of despair and uh, everybody's giving up. People right now are in fighting mode. People are very emboldened. And I was out at one of the, I've been every week that I've been in town, I've gone to the demonstrations in Tel Aviv. And the, one of the early ones at the time was 100,000 or 120,000. And it was that night when it was pouring rain, as you recall, it was a sea of umbrellas. Everyone was soaked to the bone. It was cold for Tel Aviv, but it was very inspiring to see all of these people, families, older people, little children out there in the pouring rain, standing up for a really fundamental principle, which is democracy. And, you know, one of the things that I've written about that I would encourage people to read on our site is that these these are legal reforms kind of they're not tinkering at the edges. He says, you know, slow down. Don't worry. It's me. You know me. I have so much experience. I have a record. I've had, you know, less than fantastic coalition partners in past governments. But in the end, I always manage them. I always control them. And I'm a I'm a liberal Democrat with a small D. I understand liberal democracy and nothing crazy or extreme or, you know, questionable is going to go down on my watch. I would say even if you don't immediately become, you open the door to it. And that's Correct. the danger. Why would we even open the door? Netanyahu's argument is I will restrain my own coalition, even when we have this complete power of, again, overriding any decision, choosing all the judges. And like you said, he's putting the weight on his own shoulders. But why would we even go into a situation where the entire fate of democracy here just depends on one person being able to restrain his coalition partners? And I have to say, his track record on some issues as prime minister has been impressive. And I think he deserves credit for achievements like the Abraham Accords and especially for, I think, his actions as finance minister 20 years ago. You wrote an excellent article about that shortly after the new government was announced. And and really, I, I think, you know, there are areas where I have a lot of respect for him, even though I never voted for him. But in the area of restraining his coalition partners, no, that's not one of his strengths as a political leader over the years. I'm sorry. I think it's the opposite. That's Time why he. That's why he took his roadshow to to promote that version of himself to America. He wasn't challenged very, very much by America. If he tried that here, I think that the Israeli journalists push back much more. The question, right? So the, and I, you, we haven't even touched on the economic reforms that he's proposing, which will undo all of the, or much of the progress that he made 20 years ago. We'll leave that for another week. But let me ask you this, just in closing, where is he? He's disappeared. He's, we're not hearing from him. We're not seeing him. And the country is in crisis. What do you yes. think? What's going on? Where is our prime minister? I think he is because he did not expect to run into such strong opposition. I think he thought that the people who didn't vote for him would all just be utterly depressed and just stay home and let the government roll with whatever it wants. And then suddenly he's run into this opposition. And I think even more than the protests he is probably panicked over the economic issue. What would, where do you think this is likely to go in the next few weeks? I think if it was completely up to Netanyahu, there would be some kind of a compromise eventually. Yeah. But the question I don't know how to answer is, you know, whether it is completely in his hands. 
Yariv Levine, the justice minister, unlike Netanyahu, is a real ideologue when it comes to the issue of weakening the judicial system. Netanyahu, over the years, we know, has changed his mind on this. Yariv Levine, the justice minister, he is. He's a a true believer. And he, remember, he came first in the Likud primaries when they selected the list of Likud for the Knesset. He's very popular in the party these days. And we know that he has threatened Netanyahu that if Netanyahu looks for a way to soften this reform too much, he will resign. And so it's a very, very delicate situation. There are huge pressures from both sides. We're seeing the uh, high-tech industry, the banks, the the Israeli public that's out in the streets, the, of course, Israel's friends abroad, you know, foreign leaders who support Israel. We saw the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, make an intervention this week. And on the other side, there is, I think, the the threat coming from Yariv Levine. And he's in the middle. He's in the middle. And so are we. Um, Yeah. Well, yeah, he's in the middle and he's in the middle, but he's he's got the sort of the legacy and the future of the country in his hands. Absolutely. Um, which is I, I, lots, I, I lots of 100% control. I, I'll say this lesson this. I hope there will be a compromise. I don't think it will be reached by the liberal side giving up on the uh, protests. I think it's the other way around. The protests have created some leverage for mm-hmm. the uh, liberal side that wants to protect the Israeli democracy and realizing that there will have to be a compromise. Well... There are heady days. We'll be watching this closely and we look forward to having you back to talk about it in the future. But before I let you go, Amir, on a lighter note, the publication and the, and the podcast are called State of Tel Aviv. When I named this, this publication in May, when we launched, State of Tel Aviv was a much more lighthearted kind of thing, you know, in the way that we've used it. Ah, State of Tel Aviv, it's where all the lefties and the hippies and the hedonists and the tech uh, billionaires are living and it was used as a metaphor for the good life and the liberal life but it's come to have a much more serious meaning in recent weeks what do you think yes i agree 100 percent. and I, I actually thought about it after the election that you you chose a really good name yeah. Um, yeah. you didn't predict where it was going to go but definitely i think tel aviv is the liberal bastion of israel it's a city that even people who don't live there, like myself, but that belong to the more to the more liberal and the pluralistic camp in Israel, consider a second home in many ways and, and look up to. And yeah. I think it's the city that Israel wants to show to the world. And yeah, it's a challenging time for Tel Aviv. And I, think I agree. It's shown, I think it's shown, Tel Aviv has shown itself to be much more than the shallow metaphor. A hundred percent. Decadence and freedom and hanging it on the beach. It's shown that it has a real kind of, you know, backbone, third deep core. And yeah. what matters most is liberal democracy. Amen. So, I agree. Amen. I agree 100%. Amir, thank you so much for joining us. Always great chatting with you. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to be on the launching episode hey. of this podcast. And I wish you a lot of luck moving forward. As of this moment, On Thursday, February 23rd, the government of Israel remains determined and entrenched. Even the possibility that they may be on the verge of destroying the democratic and economic well-being of the country, they react to this with contempt. Meanwhile, the roar of dissent and condemnation is deafening. I have yet to hear a single member of any professional 
or business or academic community step up to praise this government's reforms. On Tuesday, the Jewish Federations of North America issued an extraordinary written plea in an open letter to Prime Minister Netanyahu and leader of the opposition, Yair Lapid. They implored Prime Minister Netanyahu to listen to the dissent. The governor of the Bank of Israel convened an emergency meeting on Wednesday night to discuss the perfect storm of instability already impacting the economy. In fact, the only voices that seem to find merit in this reform initiative are right-wing ideologues who will shill for anything that takes down their nemeses on the left. For them, life is that binary. And then there's Netanyahu doing nothing. Already, there are significant amounts of money being moved offshore. Major planned investments in Israel are being deferred. And the mighty shekel, among the strongest currencies in the world, has been hit hard in the last few days, declining significantly against the dollar. Many say that this is nothing compared to what will come, but this little poke from foreign currency traders seems to have finally, we hope, maybe, awakened Bibi to his harsh reality. In a statement late Tuesday, Netanyahu urged the opposition to come to the table to discuss the reforms, while doubling down and saying that the blitz to ram the new laws through the Knesset will not slow or stop. The opposition says such an invitation is made in bad faith. Good faith talks do not occur under such conditions. You cannot forge ahead while in negotiation. But Justice Minister Yariv Levine dismisses all of this back and forth about meetings and talks as being irrelevant. He says he'll talk, but in the same breath, he makes it resoundingly clear that he will not slow his pace in the Knesset. Levine likes to speak in big historical terms of the masses who have yearned for justice these long decades and that nothing will impede the progress of his great reform program. It's almost as if he is daring Netanyahu to rein him in because Yariv Levine is not stopping his populist crusade. Bibi, King Bibi, as Likud loyalists call him, may well be presiding over the destruction of the most remarkable national resurrection story, the establishment of modern Israel and its impossibly flourishing society, culture, and economy. Yet today, King Bibi stands alone, a fearful man with no true allies and so many enemies. To see such a truly great man, brilliant, patriotic, dedicated, to see him reduced to a speck of what he once was, surrounded by unprincipled, vengeful coalition partners, would evoke pathos if he wasn't taking this magnificent country down with him. We're dropping a written piece later today that gets into the detail of this issue. Have a look. Stateoftelaviv.com. In the meantime, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed our launch and hope you come back soon. Please stay engaged. Tell your friends. Like us. Follow us. We're on Twitter, Insta, and Facebook. Stateoftelaviv.com. Until next time, thanks for being here. Stay cool. Be well. Stay safe.